Hello, Vetfolio Voice listeners. I am so excited to bring you this podcast where I have the privilege of speaking to the wonderful guys from a little podcast called Vet Tech Cafe. If in your podcast surfing, surfing, is that what you do when it comes to podcasts? Man, I feel old. It just occurred to me that I'm the host of a podcast channel, yet apparently sorely lacking when it comes to correct terminology. Um, But anyway, I digress. If you have not checked out Vet Tech Cafe, I highly encourage you to scoot, surf, click, whatever it is you have to do over to their channel and check it out. Dave and Jeff interview veterinary technicians and nurses in all aspects of the veterinary field, including those in clinical medicine and those forging careers outside of the clinic. They discuss different medical topics as well as diving into some of the hard-hitting issues facing veterinary medicine today. The next time you have a few minutes, it's well worth the listen. If you don't know who they are already, let me tell you a little bit about Dave and Jeff and then we'll get into our talk. Dave Cowan graduated from UMass Amherst in 1995. After moving to New Hampshire, over the span of 20 years, he worked for an educational farm, the Animal Rescue League, a general practice, and an emergency practice. In 2013, Dave passed the Academy of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care Technician exam and became a veterinary technician specialist in emergency and critical care. In 2016, Dave moved to North Carolina to become a technician supervisor at the Veterinary Specialty Hospital. Dave joined the Triangle Veterinary Referral Hospital to become their education and training coordinator in 2018. He now teaches at Miller-Mont College in Raleigh while still working relief shifts at emergency and referral hospitals. He has a passion for emergency medicine and is a certified recover instructor. Jeffrey Backus started as a veterinary assistant in general practice in 1995. He began working in emergency and critical care in 2004. He became an RVT in 2009 and was an ER ICU supervisor at Animal Urgent Care for over 12 years. Jeffrey also taught part-time at his alma mater, Heritage College, for seven years. In 2013, he became credentialed as a VTS in emergency and critical care and sat on the credentialing board's exam committee for three years. He's now the co-chair of the credentialing committee. He's been on the board of directors for the California RVT Association for eight years, currently serving as president, and has been a subject matter expert for the California Veterinary Medical Board. In 2016, he moved to Massachusetts to join academia, working as an ECC technician at the Tufts Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine. He's also a frequent lecturer and speaker on all topics related to emergency and critical care. So, as you can tell, yeah, they're kind of a big deal, and I was thrilled to have the chance to sit down with them over a cup of coffee and discuss some of the difficult issues facing veterinary nurses and technicians, and how we can work together from all aspects of the profession to help create long-term sustainability in the veterinary field. Let's jump in. All right, we're so excited to be talking today to Jeff and Dave from Vet Tech Cafe. Um, thank you guys so much for agreeing to do this podcast together. Oh, we're happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for Thanks inviting for us. us. This is this is going to be so much fun. Yes, absolutely. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, what do you think? Should we just get started and go right in? Absolutely, absolutely. All right, all right. So I think what we're going to talk a lot about today is just a lot of the issues that our our profession is facing and what do you think where do you guys want to start off with maybe technician utilization i think that's a good point a good a good starting point 
All right. I recently had somebody correct me when I said technician utilization. And they said, you know, you utilize your your pulse ops. You don't utilize people. Um, you empower technicians. Um, okay. What What's your feeling on that? I, I'd never heard of that. That's, I mean, that that does make sense. But I think we just, we we hear that term and we use that a lot of, of technician utilization of, and kind of what it means to me is is using us as, as valuable members of the team and, and you know, speaking, speaking personally from when I was a, a young baby tech uh, very early on 20 years ago, uh, we were just glorified warm bodies that, that would help hold animals for the doctors. And, you know, it wasn't until after a group of the technicians said, you know, there's stuff that we can do. And, and our doctors started to say, okay, this is how you intubate. And this is, this is the other things that you can do as technicians. And, and it took us actually going to our doctors and saying, why are we just sitting there holding animals for you to do stuff to? Uh, we should be more involved. And I, I think that's kind of just the very beginning stages of things. And and as things have progressed, you know, here we are 20 years later, and we're still looking for that validation of what we can actually do. Um, I, I will say it's better, but we still have some work to do. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, utilization. Um, yes, I, I love the idea of empowering your technicians, but I think the utilization comes from utilizing their skills and knowledge, um, not sure. you know, not just utilizing you know, the person to, to do tasks or whatever. And, you know, the, the amount of training or the amount of education that they may have obviously is highly variable, but, um, but the utilization to me comes from, you know, being able to perform tasks uh, or whether it be talking to clients or doing procedures or whatever it may be to free up the veterinarian to do things that really by law, they are the only ones in the practice allowed to do. And so, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, I come from, from California uh, where our, our practice act is, is I'll say pretty rigid. Um, it's pretty explicit what, what can and cannot be done. And really there's, Four things that only a veterinarian can do, which is, you know, uh, surgery, which is pretty well defined, diagnose, prognose, and prescribe medications. Outside of that, um, you know, it's it's the comfort level of who you have around you that you and what trust you have in them and their ability to do all of these things to free you up to be able to see more people or you know do the things that we cannot do, and so you know, utilization really becomes a two-way street by, by utilizing us, then you can utilize the skills that only you can perform or a veterinarian can perform in a practice. Sure. Um, you know, plus something to be said with kind of this universal terminology that we've used for a long time, um, that it has kind of a familiar meaning to a lot of people. And I like what you said about, um, the four things that only veterinarians can do. I think it's really important that we continue to remind people of that, that um, a credentialed technician, obviously very state to state, but really can, can legally do a lot of things that I think sometimes that we forget that as veterinarians, um, as far, I mean, I think it's pretty universal, even with the variation state to state, the four things that are limited to only veterinarians are exactly what you said, diagnosing, prognosing, surgery, and prescribing. Um, and then we really need to, to let off the reins and let the people around us do what they're trained to do and what they love to do. Yeah. Well, not to get in, not to go down a, a rabbit hole so early, um, <laughs> 
but that's what we're here to do. <laughs> Jeff, bring, Jeff brings up a good point of there are so many varying levels of education and skills and knowledge amongst the team members, not just doctors, but also with technicians and, and technically assistants or, or what have you. Um, and it must be frustrating for doctors to come into a practice that you don't really know the team all that well. And you do have that, that big varying level of, of skills within that practice and not knowing like, what can you do? Like, what do you know how to do? Because right. there are so many things or so many different levels of people that I don't want to say that are allowed to work in, in the field as technicians. Um, but there's such a varying level of, of skill level and experience level and knowledge level to say, okay, I'm going to come in this, this dog needs a central line. Which of my 12 technicians can do that? And which, which of you 12 are actually technicians that are, are trained <laughs> at that? Um, and, and, you know, you may have somebody that performs the functions of a technician that can draw blood, that can run blood work, um, can run a urine sample, uh, even obtain a urine sample. But then there is that also other part of that where some of those more advanced skills, you don't know who's even able to do that based on like, is this the first time you're ever placing a central line? Do we need this right now? Or do we have some time to like train you to do this on, on the fly? And I, I think that varying level of, of education and knowledge and experience is very difficult to manage uh, as a doctor kind of going through these things and trying to figure out who can actually do these things. I think you make a good point, um, and and I appreciate you letting us as DVMs off the hook a little bit there, <laughs> um, because working as a relief vet, um, as I have for for the last year or so, um, a couple of years, uh, you're right. There there is a huge variation in the skill levels of the people that you're working with, and so as much as it is important to make sure that we're allowing the people around us to do what they are able to do. Um, you do sometimes have to go in there with, you know, feeling like, okay, if something can't, if there's nobody in here with this skill level to do this, then it's going to fall back to me. And so that can make it hard to let go and say, okay, I'm going to let you go ahead and do this. If you don't have that comfort level with the team to say, okay, I know who knows how to do what and what that comfort level is, what that right. skill level is. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think for me as well, and, and we've talked a little bit about this on our show a couple of different times that you know, I think some of this goes back to how veterinarians are trained in school. Um, so I just finished up four years working in academia and uh, I'll say, you know, there are some departments better than others that, that are good at utilizing technicians, some not so much, but I, I was kind of surprised at how little um, a vet school functions like an, an animal hospital that a veterinarian is going to work at when, when they leave school. There are a lot of students, uh, or actually, I guess really all students, um, are essentially utilized in a way of free labor for a lot of things, for patient treatments, for what have you. And, and I think that a, a great time to actually train veterinarians on how to utilize the staff is when they're in school. And, and I think we're missing the boat there by and large based on, again, just my experience in academia and, and a couple other people I've talked to as well, um, that, that we almost aren't training them to be ready to go into a hospital and, and know 
the roles of, of all the different people that are there and the functions that those people in those roles can do, um, what it means to be a credentialed technician and what the difference is. And, um, you know, I, I think in a, in a really substantial way, we're kind of missing the boat there um, in, 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 a, in a way, again, to the whole point of veterinarians going to vet school, right, is, is training and learning and knowledge. And I think we're missing a huge section of that and it's kind of an invert not that we have to have classes about you know how to function in an animal hospital but if the if the vet school um the teaching hospital itself were to function more as a as an actual practice would and um you know not have the student do all of these things that receptionists would do or client service representatives would do like answer the phones or um, you know, do patient treatments like technicians normally do and, and actually kind of just set the example of how it should be. Um, I think that could, could really, really go a long way. But um, as technicians, you know, where do we, how do we work on that or how do we fix that? That unfortunately has to be done by the AVMA and, and we don't have a seat at the table. So, um, you know, I, but I think that's, that's one area where we could really make some substantial improvements and that would naturally, again, kind of over time, really help solve some of that problem. Yeah, absolutely. Of, you know, just learning what the different roles are in the hospital. Um, I think the intention behind having students do a lot of these things is good, you know, to give DVMs a familiarity with the different roles throughout the hospital. But you're right, I, it might put us a little bit into that mentality of, I have to do all of these things. It's all my responsibility versus, you know, it's a good idea to, to understand the different roles, but as part of that understanding, um, figuring out how, how you work as a team and how you rely on each other and everybody gets to play a role in the practice. Right. Yeah. I, I do some somewhat agree with the way the schools are running now is Jeff, you say we should, we should be treating these animal hospitals like 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 we would normally do that in in school and utilizing technicians and utilizing credential technicians however there are practices out there that don't have rvts they don't have lvts so i do kind of understand why doctors need to get training on some of those things because like you said cassie there, there may be times where you get into a practice and you're the only one that knows how to do that one thing um so i do i do somewhat understand having doctors learn that stuff. However, if they didn't have to, they could spend so much time learning other things that are more important. Right. And I think that's it is, is learning the value of having those people and having those people on staff. And, you know, it, it feeds into so much other things or so many other things that we're going to talk about today. Um, you know, all of these topics are, are all kind of intertwined. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, I think there's just, it's a multifaceted problem with, with lots of probably very complicated solutions. Yeah. yeah. That's okay. We're going to solve it, right? <laughs> oh, we're solving it today. Awesome. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but I mean, we've always said, you know, you, you can't start to fix a problem if you don't start talking about it. So yeah. just starting to talk about it, I think hopefully we'll, you know, I don't know how our reach is not huge. It's, we don't have a massive reach, but we do have some reach and you have some reach. So hopefully we can reach out to some people and, and maybe get people talking about this and getting more change involved. Yeah, I think we need, you know, we need to talk about it and we need to keep talking about it because I think there are some real issues here. Um, just as illustrated by our exchange up to this point of different ideas uh, and 
yeah, th these are major issues that we need to address. I mean, we have have problems with longevity in the field and, you know, burnout, stress, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so like you said, the first step is to start talking about it and have people understand where these problems lie and, and let's start brainstorming. And, and just because it's always been a certain way, doesn't mean it has to stay that way. <laughs> right. We always say just because that's the way you've always done it. Doesn't mean that, that it was always right. Yes. Right. right. Yes. A lot. Yeah. yeah. Or, I mean, you should just, you should uh, change and adapt and improve as, as new things come out and, you know, knowledge is gained and so on. We do that in medicine, right? I mean, right, yeah, we yeah. change and adapt. So this is this is part of medicine. Is you, right. you change and adapt to the culture as well. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of thinking about this again as like a multifaceted problem. You know, one of the things that also kind of goes in there too is is pay, and you know, I it's pretty well established. I think both professions, the the technician profession and the veterinarian profession, are are largely underpaid and, and certainly better in some areas than others. But again, I think if you have, you know, well-educated and well-trained staff members, veterinarians, associate veterinarians, whoever it may be in the practice, they, they need to be adequately compensated. But, um, you know, a term I hear a lot these days is living wage. And to be honest, I don't, I don't even honestly know if I know a definition of a living wage. Um, you know, it, it almost to me in, in some ways kind of sounds like a, a buzzword, um, you know, because what a living wage where I am now in Rhode Island versus where I'll be in Southern California in two weeks are two very different, very numbers, different, very yeah. different. Numbers. Um, and so, you know, but then again, you know, we talked, Dave, you kind of mentioned a little bit about the uh, almost kind of alluded to like a technician shortage where there might be areas where veterinarians don't have, uh, you know, don't have an RBT or something on staff. Um, if we make this a sustainable career uh, financially, um, you know, will that help alleviate that problem? I, I think the answer is yes, but again, how do we get there? Right. And yeah, I'm really interested to hear um, just where you guys fall on this and your thoughts on it. Um, because of course, on the DVM side, we have our own set of financial issues. Um, from what I personally have encountered, and you know, I know finances are a sensitive topic, so I am by no means speaking for everyone, but for me personally, um, I've struggled more with interest rates on student loans, making them nearly impossible to pay back rather than the wage themselves. So the, the wages themselves, I think are, you know, livable, let's say, you know, that living wage, we'll use that buzzword um, in a lot of cases, but not when there's this huge uh, student loan burden with really high interest rates to try to pay back. So I think there's a difference. And again, like I said, I know this is a sensitive topic, so I, I definitely want to specify I'm speaking, you know, just from personal experience. Um, but I think there's a difference between DVMs and technicians. Uh, when it comes to the financial side of things. So I'm really interested to hear your thoughts and, and how this is, how, how it affects you. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I would say, um, you know, I, so I'm 25 years in clinical medicine. I felt like in terms of, and, and hold the VTS credential. And I felt like in terms of clinics, wherever, whatever market I happen to be in, I'm probably at the top of, of the wage earning scale in clinical medicine. Um, so 
and thankfully, again, I started long enough ago. I think I was actually trying to remember the other day for this particular recording. I think my starting wage in this field was $5 an hour. Oh my goodness. Um, and of course that was 25 years ago. Um, but, but then I was thinking where I am now, uh, I don't even know if that's, that's not even a dollar per hour a year increase. Right. Um, and so, yeah, um, it's still, you know, a, a long ways to go. And, and, um, Dr. Cassie, I, I can kind of relate to, to your point as well. My wife is a veterinarian. She just graduated. She was a, um, a V18. And so, you know, again, being a sensitive topic, but I'm, I'm going to throw some numbers out. She graduated vet school, $350,000 in student debt. Oh my goodness. And then she took, she did a, um, a one year rotating internship that paid her, I think $35,000 for the year. Um, and I don't know if, if you did an internship, but anybody that's listening that certainly has, you understand it was probably 60 to 80 hour work weeks. So she was making probably single dollars per hour. If you, if you actually, you know, calculated that out. Um, and then of course, you know, the stress of a really crazy, busy referral practice and trying to figure out how to do medicine and all of those things. Um, it, it, one year in, she's already wondering if it's all going to be worth it, you know, and then she did a second level internship for her second year. And so it's, you know, uh, the, the, the burden, um, you know, and, and I'm only kind of experiencing it secondhand, but um, for, for graduating veterinarians, I just, I can't, I cannot comprehend some of those numbers. And, and I mean, I'm staring at the papers and I still, <laughs> yeah. can't, I, still no. can't I mean, I still can't comprehend it. So <laughs> Um, you know, it's, 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 uh, again, a multifaceted problem and, and I don't know, I don't know how to make vet school less expensive. I don't know how to magically, um, you know, increase pay, but that is a massive disparity. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I did not do an internship and, um, not the entire decision, but there was definitely a part of that, that was a financial decision mm -hmm. for me, mm -hmm. um, to know that I was going to be going another year, two years, you know, however, right. wherever that took me, um, with, a, a lower, you know, such a low wage in comparison, probably, right. you know, half, right. um, and what that was going to do to my student loans. Although, you know, in hindsight, I don't know that I made a huge dent in them anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, part of my decision at the time was a financial was yeah. a financial decision. Yeah, absolutely. I know uh, many of her classmates, friends of ours that, that made the exact same decision, uh, you know, just to go out into practice because they thought they could get the same training and mentorship that way and, and not go through the burdens of an internship. And I completely understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Jeff, I'm kind of in the, the same spot. I, I think my first veterinary job, I was making maybe $8 an hour. Um, but still, obviously, 20 some odd years ago. And I, I would say that I'm also at that point where I've probably maxed out what I'm ever going to make as a technician. Um, and I've, I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, as I as I progressed as a technician, as I got as I got better and I I passed the VTNE and passed my VTS boards and gained all these skills and took on all these new roles and all these other jobs uh, within the practice. I, I think, you know, where I was up in New Hampshire, my longevity uh, in that practice, like I was in that practice for a good 10 plus years. And I, I think that's probably a big portion of why I got to the level where I've made. And in the last 
four and a half years since I moved down here, I've, I've changed jobs uh, roughly three times. I'm about to change jobs a fourth time. Um, spoiler alert. Uh, this, this will probably post after that's announced. So, um, <laughs> do they know that? <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't yet, but um, I, I mean, some people do, but, but sure. not, not my students. Um, but, you know, I've changed jobs roughly almost every, every other year as, as a technician down here. And I have not made any more money. My, my pay has been pretty much the same since I left New Hampshire four and a half years ago. Like I, I have not made yeah. a, a cent more. I've actually made, I'm actually making less right now. Um, so, you know, there is a cap to what we can make. And, you know, unfortunately for me, I, I hit that cap five years ago and yeah. I, I'm left wondering, like, I, I'm at the point where some other younger tech, technicians are, are making you know, ten, eleven dollars an hour. Thinking, am I ever going to make more money? And I'm, I'm at that same boat, even though I'm making way more than that. Um, and, and not to say, you know, using this term "livable wage," yeah, I have more responsibilities now. I have more costs now. I have more certifications that I need to keep up, keep up with now because I've advanced myself that far. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the money is a, is a big thing, and I, I can't speak to the, to the point of some of the other technicians because. Jeff and I are, are kind of at the top of what we will make. Um, but there's, I mean, younger technicians, newer technicians, I can't tell you how many of them are working two jobs right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, they're making that livable wage by combining two, sometimes two full-time jobs together just to, to make it and to pay rent and buy food and afford car insurance and all this other stuff. And it's, it's to the point where, yeah, this job is, it, there's no wonder there's so much turnover because it's not sustainable. Yeah. It's not sustainable. Yeah. Yeah, I can. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm nodding my head going, I've, I've seen it firsthand. Um, you know, I, I lived it for a period of time. Um, I worked as a, as a technician, technically um, an assistant. I say technician because I'm in Florida um, where credentialing is not required. But um, so technically I was an assistant at uh, the University of Florida for a while. And, um, you know, it, it, I saw it so much as far as not being sustainable in the long term, uh, and my husband still sees it. He's uh, he does human resources over there, and we try to solve this problem on a regular basis, and we still haven't gotten yeah. to the bottom of it. Um, but I, you know, I think these are a lot of the major issues: the utilization, the pay, and then you guys also mentioned um, staff turnover being a big issue. I know that's a huge source of frustration, um, from a veterinarian's perspective. Uh, and I know it is from yours as well. You know, I always look at it. I, I rely heavily on my team when I'm in the clinic. I always feel like I'm just one person and I'm only human. I'm so fortunate to have this team of people here to support me. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, I'm just kind of like steeled against it because you get that team that you trust and y'all, you know, everybody's in support of each other. But due to that lack of sustainability, all of a sudden you lose one person or you lose more and people are forced to pick up additional responsibilities, which leads to that stress. And there's still the pay issue. And, you know, here we go through this roller coaster that happens over and over and over again. And it, it's. I get it. Um, it's, it's frustrating, but, but I get it. Yeah. yeah. I, I would say, I think, you know, again, not to, to make light of the first two issues that we talked about, but I think if, if ever we as a profession were to get the utilization and the pay figured out, the turnover would naturally mm-hmm. 
work itself out. Like, I think this is one that I don't know that we can solve without solving some of the other things, but I will say too, in, in, in my time at, at Tufts, you know, we like students turn over every year. It's a new set of students on clinics. It's a new class of interns. Um, you know, there's always residents coming and going every year. Um, so other than faculty, we don't, we don't have staff doctors. Um, and so turnover is just such a natural part of the environment. And, and I don't know if it's that that spills over to technicians. Um, I also know that, you know, our vet school and, and probably several others um, promote uh, assistance to the title of veterinary technician that aren't credentialed. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's administration. That's, that's fundamental, right? That's not on the students or, or the faculty or anything like that. Um, but when we get back to like turnover and stuff, I, f I felt like where I was turnover was, was just such a natural thing because everybody in the hospital was doing that. There was, I almost felt like there was no, uh, desire to keep long tenured or, um, well-educated or well-credentialed staff because t turnover was just such a natural thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, when I started there, I was a group of a couple of different technicians that were hired specifically for the emergency and critical care department. And while I don't have the numbers, I strongly feel like when I left, which my last shift was just a couple of weeks ago, we were at a net loss of people from where I started four years ago. I mean, we had six or eight open positions when I gave my notice. Um, and we just, you know, there's a couple of people that we've hired that have stayed, but there's, there's not, you know, there's already so many people that have come in and, and we have a really, really great tech school program nearby um, that's still one of the, the few tech programs that has a fully functioning animal hospital um, on site. So they get a lot of in-hospital training, these veterinary technician students, and we get a lot of employees from them. And just in my time alone, I know technicians that graduated from that program got their CVT and left, and not just left academia, they left veterinary medicine altogether because within a year or two, they were already like, this is not sustainable. I can't do this and, and have moved on to find other careers. And, you know, when I think back younger in my career, turnover wasn't nearly the thing, at least in the clinics that I worked in, Dave, maybe you can talk to that too. But um, I, I think now people are just, less willing to put up with, with the BS and the poor conditions and the low wages and the, the lack of utilization and stuff that maybe we were then, um, or maybe it's just highlighted and more out there now, but, um, but it's definitely something I've noticed really increased, at least in my personal experience the last few years. I, I would say probably, in, well, in the first 18 or so years of my career, I worked at two practices that there was not a lot of turnover, but I think that's also because we were treated really well. We were right. respected. We were, right. our, our opinions were valued. And um, I don't know if it's just because since I've moved down to North Carolina, I've worked at a corporate practice. I've worked at another referral practice. Um, I, I don't know if that's, that's the cause of it or if it's just the, the timing of things of, of when I, when I left those two practices up in New Hampshire down here that, that there was a shift in what what we saw in the practices, and you know, just speaking on on turnover itself, um, some of the roles that I've had have been like training and, and education and, and getting new technicians up to speed. And one of the jobs that I that I've recently left within the last couple of years, uh, I left that job because I was hired as an education and training coordinator, and 
to me, that role meant I was going to be training staff. I was going to be putting on CEs. And uh, that was like my dream job of, of training and CE and, and teaching students or, or not students, but teaching new technicians how to do some of the great stuff that we can do as technicians. And maybe a couple months into that, they were like, yeah, we need you on the floor. So my role from education and training went from, from that to, well, now we need you on the floor. And by the way, we're short staffed. So there was no opportunity for me actually to do any of that training. And we get in all these new people and me as, as the training person, when do I have time to do that? When I'm swamped with ERs and swamped with the ICU, like when do I have time to do any of that stuff? And I, I think that that probably led to a lot of the turnover at one of the practices I was at because they didn't feel like they were taken care of because the person that was supposed to be taking care of them was, was under four or five ERs and six triages and, and an ICU full of patients. Like what was I supposed to do? Yeah. And eventually that's why I left because of like, you hired me to do your job and you're not letting me do the job. So I, I have to find something different. I think we have almost, it's, it seems almost like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy or like chicken or the egg situation where it's like, um, you know, I kind of mentioned feeling like steeled against that turnover because it, it breaks my heart every time it happens. But I feel like I, I know it's going to happen for, for various reasons. And I think that's a problem. You know, I almost wonder, like I said, the self-fulfilling prophecy of like, oh, they're going to, they're going to leave anyway. Right. Um, so I tell, tell me more about the, you know, I, I stayed at this practice for a long time because we were paid and we were respected. Like, what was that like? What do we need to be doing differently to not have this continuous cycle that is clearly, you know, dysfunctional for everybody. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really excellent point you make because that, that, I, I mean, I, I, I believe sometimes that's the mentality, like they're just going to leave. Like we know, we know that shelf life quote unquote of technicians is five to seven years. So why, why make an investment to try to make that to, to extend that shelf life? Um, and Dave, you can talk about this too, but the clinic I worked at in Southern California, I think I was there for 12 or 13 years before I moved to New England. It's where I got my VTS. Um, if I wanted to go to a conference, I just asked the practice manager. She sent me um, all, basically all expenses paid. Um, you know, doctor came out of the room, wrote the orders. We did everything. Um, you know, there, there wasn't, you know, which I thought was pretty standard. And, and I would see posts online about, um, you know, the difficulties people were having in clinics. And I was like, man, I just, I don't, I'm not experiencing this. And then I came to realize I was actually working in one of those unicorn clinics that, that everybody kind of talks about. Uh, so they do exist, but at the same time, like how do we break that cycle of, um, you know, just getting, getting, whether it be practice owners, practice managers, corporations, whoever it is out of that mindset of, well, they're only going to be here for a short time and into the mindset of, well, if we invest in them, you know, like any good investment, hopefully it will pay dividends down the road and we can extend that shelf life by a few years and, and have a really great team together, you know, or a core group of people for six, eight, 10, 12 years or more. Um, if you, if you create the environment that people want to stay, they'll stay. Well, and just, just to jump off on your, the, using the term unicorn clinic, I, I too worked at a unicorn clinic and, and Jeff, you know, a lot of the people that work up there mm -hmm. as well. And, uh, you know, you ask what creates that unicorn clinic and thinking back, it was, uh, like, like Jeff said, 
using, using us, using us as technicians, using our skills and valuing our opinions. And I, I've been thinking about this of, of what makes it a unicorn clinic. And you know, when you go to a, a new place and you're, you're doing your working interview and you talk to the technicians and you're like, so tell me about this place. What do I need to know? And as I'm thinking of my unicorn clinic, uh, I would tell them all the great things about the clinic and everything about the boss. Like the boss is a great person to work for. The office manager was a great person to work for. It was a small clinic. Clinic. We were we were kind of like a family, um, and and that was a, a great environment. And now that I think of other clinics that I've worked at since then, I say, well, this is good and this is good. But here's the other thing, and. When I think about that unicorn clinic, I never had a but. There was never a, uh, well, you do have to watch out for this. And so-and-so is a crazy person and, and don't deal with that person. And, you know, as I've gotten into other clinics, there's always that but of like, oh, this is great. You'll, you'll learn how to do this. You'll learn how to do that. Pay's not that great. Um, sometimes the office manager is kind of crazy and makes you do stuff. You do have <laughs> to work a lot of overtime. Um, but, but overall, it's a, great, it's, it's a great place to work for. With that unicorn clinic, you never have that but. I've you never, never had have that, that thing where you're like, mm, well, maybe. The, and, and I'm trying to think right now, like, is there something that I can think of that, that I would say, well, you do have to watch out for this. And I can't think of that. Yeah. Um, which is what makes it a unicorn clinic. Yeah. Do you think there's a, there's a scale issue there? Um, you mentioned that it was a really small clinic and you are kind of like a family. Do you think as they get bigger and bigger, maybe we run into more problems there just by the nature of more people working together in the same environment? Yeah. It, it, I, I don't want to, I don't want to talk bad about corporate practices. Cause I do, I do see their value. Um, but you know, leaving New Hampshire, I came down to work for corporate practice and, you know, when I eventually left there, one of the questions I had for my new job was like, how many levels of management do I have to go to, to get something done? Like I, I use the, the example of a, of a syringe pump um, where we were sh short syringe pumps and I had to fill out a form and then I had to go to a committee and then the committee had to talk about it. And then the committee had to pass it on to another level and then go up to another level. And then finally, six months later, I, I get my syringe pump where six months later, I probably need four syringe pumps now. Um, so that smaller scale, I, I think, does play a big role in it, because the the doctor there, the owner, the owner and his wife knew everybody, and they mm -hmm. they were they treated us all like family. Um, whereas it, in the, in the corporate practice I, I worked at uh, when I was leaving, they said we want this to be a family, and, and you know one of the arguments against that was, well, you just fired like six of my brothers and sisters, so I don't see how we're supposed to make this a family. Yeah. Uh, unit when you're just lopping people off willy-nilly um, right. for finances. Yeah. And, and Dave, the, the clinic I came from is, is a little bit different model than yours and that we were owned by a board and, and just had a practice manager on mm -hmm. site and, and had associate veterinarians. And, um, but what, but what I will say, kind of listening to your response, what, what I thought of is we had really strong leadership. Mm -hmm. Um, if, as you were alluded to with the syringe pump, I mean, if something broke, if centrifuge broke, it was either fixed or replaced the next day. Um, yep. the, the centrifuge that we had in the ER at Tufts still has, I mean, the, the white tape has been changed, but it's been held together with a piece of white tape <laughs> my entire time there. Um, and, and why? Why is that? Because exactly what you're saying is that, you know, it's got to go through all of these people and all of these different things. And, and it, it just, the wheels turn, but they never go anywhere. And so, you know, Thinking about scale, yeah, I think those were smaller practices, but certainly not, um, at least my clinic. I mean, we had probably 20, 25 people, maybe even a few more on staff. Um, yeah. 
But I think one thing, especially as I think about like 24 hour facilities, places that never stop, they just, they never get a break. They never get to close their doors, turn the sign around, turn the answering machine on. Like, I think those, it's really, really hard for those kinds of places to, you know, if there's a, a fundamental problem, if there's something that needs to be fixed staffing wise or whatever, I think sometimes it's, it's really, really difficult to get a hold of because there's, there's never a pause button. Well, and, and just, I, I don't mean to keep going on and on about this clinic that I worked at was one of the things that happened that is such a stark contrast from working for a private practice and working for a corporate practice. Um, there was one day that I took a phone call from uh, a client at, and, and the boss was working along with us. So he was there that day. And this woman was going on and on about, she was just yelling at me. She was swearing at me. And uh, the boss was sitting next to me on another computer. And I said, Kevin, can I hang up on this woman? And he didn't ask what was going on. He said, yeah, go ahead, hang up on her. Um, Cause he knew that if I was asking that, that something bad was going on and he did not tolerate clients treating his staff that way. Um, and he said, if they come back, we'll deal with it. And uh, <laughs> contrast to that um, in the corporate practice I worked at, we had this one client that was terrible, terrible to the receptionist, terrible to the staff, terrible to the technicians, not to mention his dog was a jerk. Um, and he had all these demands every time he came in and he demanded special treatment. Um, and he was a nightmare to deal with. And turns out this person was actually a life coach, which made us think, how is this person a life coach? <laughs> Explains so much. <laughs> well, can't, can't control his own life and, and, and gives us all this crap. And thinking back to the, the clinic that I worked in New Hampshire, that person would have been fired as a client like instance number two. And this was going on years of this person being terrible to staff. And there was an actual meeting to say, should we fire this person in pros and cons? And there was like, I don't know, there was at least 10 people at the table, like doctors, technicians, uh, managers, CSRs, all that stuff. And I'm like, and, and this is very early on in my, my corporate career. And I said, guys, I'm, I'm not really understanding this because in the clinic that I used to work at, we would never be at this state. We would never get to the point where we have a meeting on whether or not we're going to fire somebody. Uh, and, and I gave the example of, of somebody called and browbeat me over the phone about something that was completely unrelated. And the, the, the doctor said, go ahead and hang up on them. Whereas here, we have to have a meeting on, are we going to tolerate this person treating the staff this way? And I, I don't mean to place such an such a emphasis on how bad corporate is and how good private is, because I do realize that both of these things have um, their value. Um, but, but just making that a unicorn clinic is taking care of your staff and having their back and being on their side instead of saying, well, this person's being terrible to all of us. So let's talk about it first before we get rid of them. And I, I, I'm trying to think, I don't think that person actually, I don't think they actually fired that client, yeah. which oh I mean, kind of goes right along with it. Right, yeah. right. Uh, Dr. Cassie, kind of along those lines, like what, what, did you have any training in school about how to deal with those, how to navigate those kind of situations as a veterinarian? Like, uh, you know, what do you do if you're in the situation with an, an irate client? Like conflict resolution. Take, yeah, like, yeah. Do you felt like you got a little bit of that or no? So um, yes and no. We... We did have some training just on client communication, um, and they would uh, kind of walk us through talking to a client. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, it was a it was like 
you know, we did this a couple times throughout a semester. We did, um, and you know, kind of periodic trainings. It wasn't, um, you know, like if I, I don't want to speak incorrectly, but I don't, I feel like it wasn't like a whole big class on how to do this. Um, and I think a lot of the focus was on our communication with the client, not necessarily vice versa, not gotcha. like, what do you do if the client comes back at you and is irate and is creating this big situation more so like sitting in an exam room with a video camera and are you asking open-ended questions sure sure and stuff okay. like that sure. so no I, I we went through some stuff on you you know what if you make a medical mistake and communicating that to a client correctly but I don't think there was a lot in terms of conflict resolution and I I feel like I'm hearing a lot more stories now, um, 2020, um, uh, you know, just these really difficult clients being a more regular encounter. I don't know if it was quite as pervasive. Um, I I graduated in 2014, which wasn't a super long time ago, but um, in 2020 seems like quite a big departure. So maybe these are a little bit more pervasive now, but I don't know, that could just be my perception. Yeah, yeah. Well, and just, I mean, you mentioned 2020, I mean, added stress. I mean, it's stressful for everybody, but us as, as essential employees or essential workers or whatever they're calling us, you know, we don't have the ability to say, okay, well, we're just going to take a break because COVID's going on. We, we, we still have to go to work. We still have to do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, Cassie, you, you brought up the point a little while ago, um, and it's something I kind of want to go back to because it kind of feeds into a lot of this stuff. Um, the difference between or, or the the usage of correct titles like uh, veterinary assistant versus credential technician. And, um, you know, as, as I said, even in, in my time at Tufts, I saw assistants promoted to veterinary technicians who had not gone to school or had not taken the VTNE or, or satisfied the, the Massachusetts requirements. Um, and again, I, I think that's even though the school isn't necessarily going to spend time training veterinary students on, on what a, an actual CVT is kind of as an unintended consequence of that, they are training veterinary students that it's okay to hire veterinary assistants and call them veterinary technicians and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, I, I was an alternate route student in California. So, um, we, we basically, had this law that you could, if you had enough uh, in-clinic experience, um, you could combine that with a a lesser education component. You still had to go to class, but it was less classroom hours. Combine that with your experience of a couple of years, and then you could take at the time, it was California did not have the VTNE. We had our own state exam. So I went that route, and then we we adopted the VTNE a few years later, and so I have taken that. But as an alternate route student, um, there's still probably three dozen states in the United States that I can't get licensed in, even though um, I'm a CVT in Massachusetts, I'm an RVT in California still, um, but I can't I can't get licensed in a number of states because I'm not an AVMA accredited school graduate. But there's there's so much variability there, um, just in in our own profession in terms of title, but but the the delineation between the two, um, I, I think is really starting to, to, I mean, it's been kind of rolling for a little while, but I think that that debate is, or that, that idea or that discussion is really starting to heat up about 
um, appropriate title usage. And I think, again, that goes, that feeds back into pay, that feeds back into utilization, that feeds back into turnover, so many things we've been talking about. But I think that's another facet of it. I think that's a big problem with all, with this, you know, we look at this whole technician thing as a, as a big issue and there's so many different facets to it, like we've talked about, but we can't, typically can't fix one without fixing another. And we can't, right. we can't get to the goal without fixing all of them. There's, there's not a way to fix, I don't think there's a way to fix one individual thing. They're, they're all interconnected and, and it's very hard to do all that. Yeah. I think agreed. that's one of the big problems with this. Yeah. Yeah. My husband and I were having this conversation yesterday uh, and, you know, I was talking a, a little bit about, you know, our conversation and um, some conversations I've had recently and we were trying to solve all the problems and, and you're exactly right. Sure enough, as soon as we solved one, it created another one and they are all interconnected. I It seems like to me that um, if we're going to change anything, we we need to do it and it's going to be painful and it's, there's no way to move forward in a way that's going to address these issues that isn't going to hurt in some way. And so we kind of just need to know that that's going to happen and, um, and go forward anyway and try to make things better for everybody. And, um, as veterinarians, you know, I, we, we need to be an ally. We don't, we of course, you know, have, stake in these issues, but we want the people that we work with to have job satisfaction and longevity. And so, um, you know, how, how do we help? How do, how do we do good things? And I think you guys have hit on a lot of good points as far as, um, utilizing, uh, technicians. And I will say that's an area that is very important to me. I, really like my staff to be involved and not to feel like warm bodies or glorified animal holders. Um, and, but I also don't want to cross that line of like, well, isn't this your job as the doctor? And so that can be a tough spot to be in as a vet of like, Ooh, if I ask this person to do that, are they going to think I'm trying to like shirk my responsibilities? Um, and I, I think where I've gotten with, you know, in my, my roundabout way of getting there is, is a lot of communication on all sides, um, yeah. you know, DVMs, credentialed technicians, veterinary assistants, practice managers, and getting getting everybody's thoughts out on the table and trying to move forward, even just with baby steps. You yeah. know, we're not going to make huge leaps forward right away, but um, we can't just stay stagnant because there's no easy way forward. Absolutely. At some point, we have to rip off the Band-Aid right. and, just, <laughs> and just go for it and, you know, hope we get it right and, and what have you. But, um, you know, you, you, uh, you brought up a good point there about um, utilization and, and what have you and, and keeping that conversation going. And, um, you know, sometimes I think almost you have to inspire your your staff to or, or your coworkers or whoever to want to do new things. Like we, we get comfortable knowing what we know and doing what we do. And that's that's a comfort zone. And sometimes like we have to push past that boundary a little bit and say like, I, I really think you can do this. Like, let's, let's try it a couple times. And, um, you know, just again, continuing to like build, build our groups up, build the collective group up and, and keep pushing forward. And, you know, every clinic is always going to operate a little bit differently. But again, if, if, if you have 
good communication, you have a good structure, you have good people, like continue, continue the investment and, and continue forward. And um, as we talked about, like knowing, knowing what is allowed in, in the state in which you live in terms of what technicians can do or can't do, whether that, you know, maybe they can do dentistries, uh, maybe, maybe they can pull teeth by law, maybe they can suture incisions or do different things. Like some states, that's really clearly defined. Some states, it's really not. Um, and, and what maybe where those gray areas lie and then what your level of comfort is. But, but I, I encourage anybody listening, like know your state laws, know what, what, where responsibilities lie and what people can and can't do and work within that framework. And I think you will start to have a much, much happier staff, um, probably even a much happier clientele because things will run more efficiently. Um, and you know, we, we, move that stone a little bit more in that direction uh, one one little bit at a time. Yeah, and, and just touching on the utilization, you know, I, I've thought about um, what what makes a good team and, and that's where all the team members are all working towards the same thing. And, you know, so often, you know, I've, I've worked in, and Jeff, you've worked in very busy ERs and you've got three patients, four patients, five patients lined up that need all need catheters, all need IV fluids, all need x-rays. Um, and, kind of going on the opposite side or contrasting what we've been saying about tech, tech utilization is that if we have that situation and uh, something that really makes me feel like I'm part of a team is when I get done with one and I come back and I say, okay, let's get started on the next one. And then I find out that, oh, Dr. Jeff has already uh, placed the catheter. He still needs help getting the fluid set up, but being part of that team, obviously we want, we want as technicians to be able to do all the stuff, but there are going to be times where, we don't have time to do that all in a timely fashion. And, and, and just getting doctors to, to understand that, yeah, they're going to be giving us all the orders. And, and sometimes they give us orders for two, three patients at a time and, and not realizing that all these things do take time. And, and sometimes we do need help because historically we're always short staffed. Um, but just having doctors be a part of the team instead of just being the, the ones that say, okay, here's your orders. I'm going to go sit at my desk and type up records. Um, being involved in that and understanding that sometimes we are swamped to the point where we can't get the stuff done that you want us to get done. Um, obviously don't, don't take away stuff that, that normally we can do, but if we are swamped to the point where we can't get stuff done, getting someone to st step in and help out is, is just super helpful. Yeah. Um, and it makes us feel like we're part of the team. Uh, and, and when I've had doctors come in and, and say, I'm going to, place this catheter, give these sub fluids or, or do this while you're doing all these other things. Uh, never am I going to say that's my job. I should be doing that because if I'm, if I'm swamped to the point where I'm, I'm backed up, I mean, that, that takes stress off of my mind of, of just having help um, in, in making us feel like we're part of the team and making, making us feel like the doctors are part of the team instead of, I don't want to say it's an us versus them, but, but having it be that dynamic of, doctors are the bosses and technicians are the subordinates. Um, having a, having a team cohesive unit, I, th I think is really helpful. Yeah. And there are a lot of doctors that do, that do actually do that for us, which is really helpful. Yeah. Agreed. I'm so glad that, that you said that as far as like being part of a team. Um, so I heard a couple things in what you said um, is it, it sounds like ultimately it's a balance. It's a balance mm -hmm. between um letting you do your job, but not, um, 
not when you're so swamped, you know, not, not failing to jump in when the technical staff is so swamped that they can't get it all done, you know, still be, being willing to jump in and pitch in. Um, I, and I will tell you, I, I could not agree more with you as far as the team approach. I feel so strongly about that. And everybody looking at this patient, looking at this case and offering their opinion. Um, at one of my biggest pet peeves is if I say, hey, what do you think about this? And somebody looks at me and goes, I don't know, you're the doctor. I'm like, so I automatically have all the answers? Like, no, I'm only one person. I'm only human. You know, I've been yeah. I've been a vet since 2014. So, you know, six years, a little bit over. You guys have been in the field for 25. You've worked with <laughs> multiple different doctors and you've seen lots of different cases and different approaches to things. Um, there's a lot of value to be gained from that team approach and just everybody yeah. putting our heads together and, and coming up with the answer together, we get better patient care, we get better client service. Um, and then, you know, the other part of it too, is if, if there is that team approach and everybody's involved, um, it, it frees us up as veterinarians because that client doesn't always come back needing to talk to the doctor. You know, they're just, yeah. they just want to talk to a team member right. because they have faith in everybody who's involved in their, their dog or their cat's or, or chinchilla's care. Uh, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> having, having right. that team, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, not personally with me, I would definitely be one of you guys that would have the care of that one. Uh, but, but no, I just think it makes life better for everybody if we all work together in that sense. Well, I've I've had doctors do that thing of like, what do you think? And I'll I'll say what I what I feel, or you know, give my opinion of what I think is going on. And and if and if I'm wrong, I want them to tell me. No, it can't be that because of because the heart rate isn't isn't elevated or something like that. Um, use those things as learning experiences. I mean, mm -hmm. you as doctors are looking for answers. You're trying to figure stuff out. Um, but as technicians, you know, that that's going to make us smarter and more part of the team if you include us in those decisions. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, the decision is yours, obviously. But to, to just have us use our brains to say, oh, I've got an elevated heart rate. I've got an elevated temperature. Maybe this dog's in pain. Uh, maybe it is uh, in various stages of shock or, or what have you. Uh, but, but just being able to utilize our brains because, I mean, yeah. Granted, Jeff and I have, have been in the field for quite a long time. We have a, a lot more knowledge and experience, but even those younger technicians, um, you know, if they're, if they've got even just a little bit of experience, they can kind of talk their yeah. way around things and figure stuff out. And if they're wrong, that's a learning experience for them. We've always said that being a technician, once you get through school, once you get your VTE passed or your VTS passed, you're not done. There's, there's still tons to learn. There's, I often tell my my students and my coworkers, I'm like, I don't know anything. I don't know everything. That's not a myth. It's, it's a myth you need to stop telling people um, <laughs> because there's so much more knowledge for us as technicians and even you as doctors to learn stuff. Like I, I feel like every single day I go to work, I should learn something. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say, even if um, we ask for an opinion and it's not on the right track, what I've found is, you know, even if, even if that's, you know, completely not where this case is going, it gets my wheels turning in a right. different way. So it, it changes my perspective on the case. So even if that's not the answer, it still helps me get to the answer by just changing my perspective on what I'm seeing. So, yeah. yeah, I think there's a lot to be gained from that roundtable discussion and everybody using their brain to figure out an animal, not just, you know, oh, well, 
you know, you're the doctor, so you have all the answers. Cause I promise <laughs> yeah. you that's not the case. <laughs> yeah. You know, one thing I've, I've heard a lot, uh, uh, through the years, especially about technicians and, and maybe this applies to, to veterinarians as well, is that once we have acquired a certain level of either, whether it be knowledge or skill level, we hoard that. Some of us hoard that and don't pass that on. Don't, don't teach or, or you know, uh, keep things to ourselves almost as like a, a job security kind of thing. Um, when you have this, this team idea, um, if you have, you know, six, eight, 10 people, whether it's one veterinarian and a bunch of staff or a bunch of veterinarians and a bunch of staff kind of problem solving this case, so many different people have so many little different areas that are their niche that, you know, um, this person over here might be like really, really strong and, and really love dentistry. Somebody else might really love ophthalmology. And like, you can really lean on those people and not have to have one person have all of those areas. Um, and so, you know, I, I know again, like I said, it's been kind of long out there that some technicians, and I'm sure again, this applies to some veterinarians as well, that we just kind of hoard our knowledge and, and not whether we're embarrassed to share it, whether we don't want to share it, but share it, allow it to become common knowledge um, so that the next time that thing happens or that case comes in or what have you, everybody is better prepared for it. And then you can, you know, start to problem solve with other things that maybe you couldn't figure out because um, it, it doesn't matter your credentials. It doesn't matter how much school you had. Like if, if you have valuable contributions, make them, make your voice be heard. I, I always, I, I, I am opposite of hoarding my skills. <clears throat> um, and I'll tell a story that happened recently uh, within the last couple of years is uh, I, I, I really like transfusions. I really like setting that up and, and figuring all that stuff out and doing all that stuff. And I, I was fairly new at this job. So I was coming in with a lot of knowledge and a lot of the, the technicians that I was working with didn't have a whole lot of knowledge on transfusions. Um, they just kind of followed along with what the doctor told them to do. And then I come along with all this passion for transfusions and, and, and knowledge about it. And <clears throat> I got a call at a baseball game, uh, day off at a baseball game. Uh, Dave, how do I do this transfusion? So sharing that knowledge, not hoarding that knowledge gives me the opportunity to not have to be on call all the time for all those things. Yep. Um, happens with central lines too. Like mm -hmm. I've, I've worked at some clinics where I would come in the next day and we've got a DKA patient that didn't have a central line in and they're, they're poking it every two hours for a blood draw. And I'm like, why does this patient not have a central line in? And they said, well, nobody knew how to do it. I'm like, well, why does nobody know how to do it? Why, why, why didn't somebody ask me to show yeah. them how to do this? Cause this patient would have been so much better off with a central line in it than you poking its lateral saphenous vein every two hours for the last 12 hours. Um, so I, I am, I am against hoarding skills yeah. and knowledge because the more you spread that knowledge and the more you spread those skills, the less I have to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and not that I, I, I don't want to do anything, but you know, there's, there's a lot of things that I do in my role. And you know, if I have to stop, X, Y, and Z that I'm doing to do the one thing that only I know how to do. Like, how is, how is that benefiting? Right. I mean, and it benefits everybody, like having that knowledge out there. It benefits oh, yeah. yeah. The patient, it benefits the client, it benefits the team as a whole. And, and like you said, and it benefits you personally because yeah. it, it 
take some of that burden off of your shoulders. This job is a huge responsibility. There's so much to do all the time. There's so much on all of our shoulders all the time. Like spread it out, spread the load. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Going back to the team. Right. I think the whole, the whole scenario of this, of this entire discussion should be teamwork. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's the only thing that's going to get things done is teamwork. Yeah. Yeah. So ideas, how do we, how do we make some of this stuff happen? (laughs) Well, you know, I'll say one thing that I've heard in this um, is I kind of mentioned earlier that that whole, it can be painful to make an investment in somebody because there's this kind of, you know, you know, the lifespan uh, typically uh, in the veterinary technician field. Uh, to say like, oh, I'm going to, you know, pour my heart and soul into this person. And they're not only going to leave my clinic, but they're going to leave the field entirely. And that can be hard to do, but, but it sounds like we need to make that investment anyway, emotionally, time, knowledge, um, financially, and make that investment in people because we're still going to lose people. Uh, People are still going to leave the field. We're not going to change it overnight, but if we can get a few more to stay in and a few more to stay in, and then maybe we can start improving things as a whole, uh, then, then maybe we can change that narrative in the long term. Absolutely. And, you know, I think when I, we, we've heard, we've probably all heard in, in 2020 with everything that's going on, seemingly clinics are busier than they've ever been. Uh, everybody is being pulled 12 different directions at one time, their caseloads are up. Um, I have a real, real hard time believing that clinics are not making at least as much money, if not more than they previously have. Um, Actually analyze your income and see if you can make an investment in your team. Um, And then that includes yourself. You know, if you're the practice owner, um, if you are, you know, your, if you're the, practicing veterinarian, whatever it might be like that investment includes yourself. Um, and I I mean, I would, I would be hard pressed based on what I've heard about how busy clinics are. And I can certainly think of my time at Tufts. I mean, we absolutely were. Um, but yet it seems, it seems even with as busy as clinics are, we're almost, um, paring down or minimizing resource utilization and, 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 holding on to, to money even more than, than we previously have. And, and, and why, like all that is doing is really furthering the problem and not working on a solution. So I would, I would encourage people to really look at if, if you really believe you're busier this year than you ever have been, then you should be making more money than you ever have been. And if you are, what are you going to do with that? Um, because that's going to speak volumes to your team. And even if that's, you know, whether that's investing in new equipment, replacing old equipment, technicians get a huge rise out of a new piece of equipment to play with. Yeah. Um, same with doctors, like a new, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a new surgery tool, an, um, a, an upgraded phone system, like whatever it is, like investing in the practice is not just investing in the people. It's also investing in the infrastructure of the practice. And so kind of like, look at that as well. Um, bring yourself up, you know, get new blood machines, whatever it might be. Um, there's a number of ways to do that. But, but I, I feel like if, if you actually can say you feel like you're busier than you ever have been, you should have more disposable revenue to invest in your practice and invest in your people and invest in yourself. 
Well, I think we also, in order to stop turnover and increase retention of technicians, uh, just speaking on, on technicians uh, right now, but, but just thinking about how to keep technicians, how to keep good technicians in your practice is you have to incentivize it. You have to say, okay, you're going to start out at uh, $14 an hour. And if you complete this task, this task, this task, and you show us that you're going to be um, uh, uh, working your way towards a leader, then we're going up to 1475 and have a clear path of that. Not right. You're going to get raises uh, potentially after every uh whatever it is, the first 90 days, we'll, 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 we'll talk about getting you a raise. Have a plan in place. Don't just dangle the term raise. You're going to get an increase. Great. Yeah. What is that? What, right. am I, what am I working towards? And then suddenly you get an increase and in, let's say it's like a 2% increase. So now you're making 1425. Great. Awesome. I made another quarter an hour. Um, but incentivize that and, and put a clear path for technicians of if you stay here this long, this is what's going to happen. And this is how you're going to benefit from, from staying that long. Um, and, and, and not just money, not, not just financial, financial uh, incentives, but, but days off. I mean, yeah. And days off and forcing, I don't want to say forcing, but requiring that people use them because and then here we go. This is going to circle back around. We have to fix that by, uh, we, we can't tell people to take off when we're short staffed every single day. Like, how are we going to say, okay, uh, Tiffany can't work today because uh, she's got her scheduled day off, uh, which means that only one person is going to be on the floor today where normally we're going to have three. Um, so you have to incentivize it in, in a way that's sustainable and mapped out. Yeah. I, I feel like here's what you're going to get year one. Um, we're going to increase your pay to uh, such and such, uh, like an extra dollar an hour if you complete all these tasks and show us that you're working your way towards this this goal um, instead of just saying we're going to give you an increase at some point like right. that that that's great to hear but then when I hear that what am I going to say I'm going to say okay when when is that going to happen right what, what do I have to look forward to right um, and I will say even going back to the to the unicorn clinic that I worked at there was one year um, as I was getting further and further on um, they, they said, we've, we've had kind of a down year. Uh, I can't afford to give you a raise, but what I am going to do is I'm going to pay for all of your medical insurance this year. Um, so, you know, just doing the math in my head, like that paid for a raise. That's, that's less right. money taken out of my paycheck. And it probably worked out, you know, tax wise with, with the owners. But um, instead of saying, we don't have money, sorry, we'll try next year. Um, he did something, you know, right. he, he did something to, to show value and show that, um, there is a path for me. There is, there is something for me to, to work towards. Um, and you know, I, I feel like if I was still working there, I'd probably be making four or $5 more an hour than I, than I am now. Right. Um, but you know, I hate snow. That's why I moved to North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, I'm with you there. <laughs> you bring up a really good point, Dave, because I think when I was younger, when I think back to my, my early days as a technician, again, you know, $5 an hour. Um, at that time, 16, 18 years old, all I really cared about was what my paycheck was. Yep. Now at 42, um, and knowing that, you know, uh, from a pay perspective, we're, we're largely topped out in this profession. I care less about the dollars per hour and more about the benefits. And so as you were kind of alluding to, um, having like some kind of tiered setup where you know, as you reach certain benchmarks with a certain practice at five years, 
we are going to increase our match of 401k from 2% to 3%. At seven years, it goes from 3% to 4%. Like after your fifth year, you get an extra week of paid vacation. After your seventh year, you get, you know, have those kinds of things set up that, that actually make people want to stay. Um, because frankly, the reality is at some point, a dollar an hour for a year, that's, that's, that's $2,000 gross. That, yeah. That's not going to make a difference at some point being the only thing keeping people there. There's going to have to be other things and that's going to be benefits. I've, I mean, I've seen hospitals offer gym memberships. Um, I've seen hospitals uh, offer, you know, supplemental insurance like Aflac, like really outside of the box things. And when you, you can't really put a dollar sign on some of that stuff, but but as you said, like in a year when maybe things are down and they can't offer you that raise, if you happen to hit a milestone that year, if that's your fifth year or seventh year and you get an extra week of paid vacation or you get some extra PTO or whatever it might be, like that's ultimately, especially as in my, from, from my perspective, as you advance in this career, that's what's going to keep people long-term, not a dollar an hour raise a year. Like, yeah. It's, it's how, how are you going to be set up for the rest of your life and, and offering 401k and offering, you know, some of those kinds of more long-term goals um, to me now, 25 years in makes, is far more important than, than what, you know, I used to think about just a paycheck back then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Treating people like they're going to be in the field for a long time. Right. Right. I'm setting up a plan that is conducive to longevity. Yeah. Um, one of the veterinarians I know from, from back home, um, I worked with him in emergency and, and he opened or bought a general practice and it's a thriving general practice. Like it's a really, really, really great facility. And he was one who really invested in his staff, but for every staff member that hit 10 years, all expense paid vacation to Hawaii. Oh my gosh. And now granted, now that's, that's a very, um, extreme example, but he knew what the value of having people in that practice that clients saw every time they came in the same faces, the same voices on the phone. He understood the value of that. And, you know, I remember a couple of years ago now his practice is, is probably only, I'm going to say 15 ish years old at this point, but he's already sent three people to Hawaii. Wow. And, and that's like, I mean, again, that's an extreme example. Not everybody has that budget, but, but, but that's something that is going to keep people like if you're at seven years, like, man, I'm going to hold out three more years and go to Hawaii before I leave this place. Like whatever it is, like, you know, and, and again, you don't just have to do that for yourself, do or do for your staff, do that for yourself, like incentivize yourself as well as a practice owner, a practice manager, like anyway. Yeah. Well, and also just thinking about the structure and the, and you know, the, the levels, uh, a lot of the practices that I've worked at, they have like, you know, you start off, you get, you get uh, 40 hours of vacation time. Uh, if you're there for two years, it goes up to 80 hours. Then at five years, it goes up to uh, three weeks off. And then after that, usually there's nothing because they don't expect us to be there that long. Right. Um, they haven't factored in that if your practice is great and, and people want to stay there, you you may have people that are there for 10 years that want to do some of that stuff. Like uh, I can count probably on on one hand the number of of technicians that I know that have been in a practice more than 10 years. Right. Um, a couple of them have been on our show and, you know, a couple, <laughs> a couple that have actually 
uh, worked with uh, the the general practice I worked at. There's, there's a couple of technicians there that have, have worked there 20 plus years, but that's I mean that's so rare. It's it's right. not very right. Uh, it, it's not very common for for technicians to be at one practice for that long. Right, right. And I, I think about my time at Tufts as well. I mean, I was only there for four years. I, I, I frankly, especially at this point in my career, I couldn't see doing it long term. But there are a number of people that have been there either approaching or past 20 years as well. And I, I know, I know it's not the pay. I know it's the benefits, you know, yeah. it's, it's the academic calendar and it's, but it's, it's working for the university and, and all of the benefits that has come associated with that. And again, at some point in everybody's life and everybody's career, like it kind of starts to shift a little bit more that direction. And, you know, again, incentivize it, you know, at, at three years, we're going to pay this much of your health insurance at five years, we're going to pay, this percentage. And, and again, you know, I, I think that is exactly the type of investment um, that, that I'm, that I'm talking about. Like why is five to seven years, the shelf life? Because Dave, as you just said, most practices only have plans yeah. in terms of a tiered system for five years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard. It's hard to plan for something that long when, I mean, like we've said, you, you've got two people there that have been there 20 years. I know maybe three or four other people that have, have lasted longer than 10 years. It doesn't really make sense for them to make that plan because, I mean, it's going to happen once or twice ever, right? Right, right. right. But that's just, I, I think that's just having, having the hope or having the desire for that to yeah. be the system have a plan in place. If nobody ever hits it, nobody ever hits it. But, yeah. Yeah, but we talked about the self-fulfilling prophecy right, earlier. Right. Right. Um, absolutely. So, so change the narrative, make a different right. self-fulfilling prophecy and yeah. um, act like people are going to be around for the long term. And, and you won't get everybody, but maybe you'll get some. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then, and then that, that, you know, that, that practice you talked about, Jeff, that's the practice that sends technicians to Hawaii. Right. Right. So that, yeah. that, that is something that, you know, right now I'm like, that's a good job to get. I I think I could. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a good job to get, you know, like. Sure. You get a reputation out there for being somebody who takes care of, of staff. I'm so glad that we're, we're putting all of this out here. Like I was just sitting here listening to you guys talking and I'm like, man, I feel like, you know, I've got the cheat sheet here to hear (laughs) a a lot of what's, what's going on and causing a lot of dissatisfaction in the field. And so I'm glad that we're going to be putting this out there. I mean, everybody needs the cheat sheet or at least the beginning version of it to say, we've got something we need to change. Um, I think that there's been enough conversation in various aspects to say it's not going to be simple. It's not going to be easy. Like you said, we fix one thing, we break another. So we're just going to have to break some things. And let's right. break some small things in the beginning. Right. right. Um, but let's start moving forward because now that we've pretty much come to the conclusion that that it's not a simple fix, then we're just going to have to start doing something. Right. Um, so thanks for giving me the cheat sheet on, <laughs> on all of this stuff. Tell me more. <laughs> well, I mean, the hard part of this is that we're technicians. Like we we're underpaid technicians. We don't, we don't have a big stake in the game of, of, of how to change the, these things within large corporations and large practices. Uh, and it's just getting a voice out there and getting right more than just us to be on board with this, um, to, to, to kind of push this, this conversation forward. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for some of these things, uh, um, Cassie, you, you said earlier, you use the term, um, 
veterinarians need to be allies for technicians. I couldn't agree more because a lot of this change, at least for our profession, is going to have to come from the AVMA where veterinarians are the only ones with seats at the table because a lot of this is going to have to be national movements or, or you know, national rules changes, legislation, and obviously not the financial stuff, but in terms of um, you know, titles and, and different things, like we are going to have to have veterinarian alliance to to work with you know their agency the avma so that we can work with our agency and navta to really try to to make some of this stuff happen and and again i know this stuff doesn't change overnight like the wheels of government turn very very slowly especially um, now but but yeah. i mean i i feel like you know dave the, the episode we just um we just recorded with liz houston she said she felt for a while like that something big in the veterinary industry was coming. And I, I mean, I really think if we're not already there, we are rapidly approaching a critical mass in this field. Um, and we, we need to take action and um, it's going to take, you know, new ideas, new people. It's going to take, you know, people getting out of their comfort zone and taking a, uh, taking a role in some of these things or being active in some of these things. Like, honestly, who wants to go to AVMA board meetings? But you know what? They're they're public. You can attend. You know, I I when I live in California, I go to every California Veterinary Medical Board meeting, and a lot of times it's like literally watching a car fire on the highway, and nothing gets done. But that's how we move the technician position, the profession, like one degree forward. Like mm-hmm. show up to the meetings, share your ideas, let your voice be heard. And and I I, I get it. Like it's boring. It's a day. It's whatever else. But but if we don't have the conversations, nothing is ever going to happen. I agree with you about the critical mass. Um, and I, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Um, I don't know if we're here and this is what it looks like or if there's something more coming. But uh, there are there's a lot of just difficulties in every aspect of the profession for a lot of different reasons. And um I think things that we can improve on going forward and um, you know, it's, it's not going to be there. There's nothing where you can say, Oh, well, you know, we're going to change this and this and this and this, but maybe we're getting to the point where we can at least start having these conversations and everybody come to the table and be honest about where we're at with things in order to better the profession as a whole and keep moving forward, not just stay stagnant in that well, it's always been this way, you know, you just got to yeah. work yourself to death for <laughs> no right. money and until you luck. can't take it anymore. Yeah. Right, right. Right. Until you leave the field. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. I wonder, I wonder if we could have like, I mean, this is, I, I know we're talking about baby steps and I'm thinking huge, massive picture. I, I wonder if there's some way and it may have to involve NAFT of, of some sort uh, of, of just having a, a round table discussion or a, a meeting of technicians of the technician field and have representatives from every state um different regions of the of the state i don't want to say like a congress but like a group of technicians that are are part of organizing and making these changes like how do we how do we organize and get to the point where we can go to the avma go to these different uh you know entities that are going to be controlling some of the things that we're trying to create change with how do we get that organization to uh get a clear path of, of what we want. And, and, you know, we talked with Liz Houston about, about unionization and I don't know if that's involved in it, but how do we get on a national level uh, 
some of these ideas out to the people that are are capable of making the change. We're you know we're we're just talking about it. We're starting this conversation, and I don't know if it's just. I don't know what's what's the term uh, imposter syndrome. I don't, I don't know if it's just imposter syndrome thinking that I'm just I'm just Dave. What, what can I do to make all these changes? Um, like, how do we get to a bigger level to make these changes? Like, where do we go from here? Yeah. Like, we're we're getting these ideas out. We're 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 talking about them. We're discussing them. But how do we get them to the next level where where change can actually happen? That's that's my big question. Yeah. And, and it's one I don't have an answer for. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, something along the lines of the the Veterinary Technician Association and stuff like that. But um, you guys would, would know a lot more about that than <laughs> I would. The other thing I think is we need to be realistic about our expectations in, in veterinary medicine. I mean, there's no doubt that many of us who go into this field and we're in it for the long haul there is some sort of a, a calling or whatever you want to call it. You know, our hearts are in this field. Um, personally, for all of its flaws, I love being a veterinarian. I love being in veterinary medicine. But I also think we need to be realistic that we can't just all show up out of the goodness of our hearts for <laughs> the rest of our careers. You know, yeah. we have we have families to support and bills to pay. And, you know, we want time to ourselves to do things outside of veterinary medicine. We want to have hobbies and lives and stuff like that. And so um, instead of kind of taking for granted that, oh, well, it's just this calling and, and veterinarians and technicians and everybody alike are just going to continue to show up no matter what, because we have this calling, uh, is it's not realistic for the long term. And I think we're seeing some of that now. Yeah. And so get getting that message across of, yes, of course, there's a part of it where our hearts are in it, but we still have to make it a sustainable career field. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, did we solve it? Did we fix all I, the problems? I, I, I'm, ready, I'm ready for another 25 years. <laughs> Jeff, another 25. Oof, oof, oof. Like you, you said 10, 10 years and I get to go to Hawaii. I'm like, I don't know that I got another 10 years in me. Oh my goodness. <laughs> no, we're so, we're so happy to watch you guys for as long as we have. Don't let us lose you now. Uh, well, well I mean, I think that was some great discussion and, yeah, and honestly, I mean, I, I would three months, six months, a year down the road, whatever it is, I would love to have yeah, another have discussion and, and, Absolutely. And, and look about, look at what we talked about today and, and a, are we still having the same, uh, uh, early or rudimentary discussions of it or, or has anything actually happened? Um, are there any new ideas out there that we can discuss and, and continue to you know, hopefully move this thing forward. Because again, frankly, like I, I say this partially tongue in cheek, at least I feel like, you know, at 25 years, like in terms of clinic work, my best years are behind me. I want to leave it a little bit better for them coming along. Um, you know, I didn't really recognize many of these problems until I hit, you know, year 15, year 20, whatever it was. I'm hoping that people that are getting in there now, um, you know, in 10 years, if they make it that longer 15, that, that it's better than, than what it is now. We've kind of somehow gotten to this point. Hopefully we can get it a little bit better so that uh, our respective professions, both for DVMs and for um, veterinary technicians are, it's, it's better some point down the road. It's just better. Well, and just putting this information out there and continuing to 
um, recognize that there are these things that need to be addressed. I mean, it's 2020. We have technology and social media and the world has shrunk around us um, in that we can reach out and communicate with each other. Um, So, yeah, hopefully just, you know, continuing to put that information out there will engage um, more and more people to where we can all work together and move forward. Absolutely. And I also want to say too, um, you know, as, as some of these discussions unfold, whether it be in, in podcast forum like this or in Facebook discussion groups, be nice to each other. Like no idea is not worth discussion. Everything, you know, whether it pans out to be a good idea or a bad idea, it still warrants discussion and, and, and thought like, let yourself get uncomfortable. Let yourself be vulnerable. Let yourself actually like think about things in a new way. Um, cause that's where change is going to come from. Mm-hmm. Yep. Get outside of your comfort zone. Yes, a little bit. absolutely. Yeah. I'll just- tell you, I love to, um, I love to take these conversations. Um, and this one absolutely, um, is along the same lines and walk back into a clinic setting afterwards and say, okay, this is the conversation I had. This is what I gathered from the conversation. What, where are you guys at? You know, tell me your thoughts on this. And there is some discomfort there, both on my part of, mm-hmm. you know, feeling like I'm kind of putting myself out there to this might not be positive feedback <laughs> that comes back. Um, All stuff they've been wanting to say, which is happening. Yeah. Like <laughs> open the door. All right, guys, let me have it. Uh, and, um, but also, you know, on, on the staff's part to say like, Oh, what do we say? Like, you know, what's right. safe and okay. But once we get that conversation going, I mean, just on a very small scale in a single clinic, uh, I feel like I've had some great conversations and gotten a lot of insight from the staff just of that one clinic. And so if by putting this out there, we can open the door to say, all right, listen to it. And then just start just start having conversations with each other, veterinarians, technicians, practice managers, everybody. Um, and let's let's talk about it and see where we all fall on the same page. Like you said, hear novel ideas, get uncomfortable and, yeah. and see yeah. where it where it all falls. And I will say that, you know, I I realize we're in, I don't, I don't know what the lockdown status is where you are. um, But that this would be a conversation to not have at the clinic. This would be a conversation to go out, have drinks and say, guys, let's talk. Because in the clinic, there's that thought of like, why are you asking me this this here? Why, why, like, who, who told you to ask me this stuff? Um, Is there a management part of it that that's, wanting you to go in there. I think when you get people out of their comfort zone and, and out of the work environment, they're more open to saying, look, this is what's going on. The, just between you and me, this is what I want to tell you. Um, whereas in the clinic, you may get a, a an edited version of what they're really thinking. Mm-hmm. Right? That's think just that's my, my, my personal experience. That's yeah, and and having a couple of drinks always helps to loosen <laughs> there up you the go. Bit <laughs> as well. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. No, I think that's great advice to yeah. um, make sure everybody's in a situation where they're comfortable. And, yeah. And is it looking for the catch of all right? If I right. say this, then what's going to happen? Right. Yeah, and then right. and then suddenly, like two weeks later, uh, so Dr. Cassie spoke with us about what you said the other day, and then they're like, "Oh crap, I shouldn't have said anything." Oh shoot. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I've actually right. known situations. Um, Fortunately, I've not personally been involved in them, but I've, I've known situations where those kinds of things have happened. And yeah, then it just, there's no conversation yeah, after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Realizing that 
now you can't really just go out to a bar right. to have that conversation. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. Is a Zoom Zoom beer date? Yeah, well, <laughs> like that. I mean, we've, we've, we've Jeff done and I've done a couple of those. Yeah, yep. yeah, yep. yeah, absolutely. Yep. Jeff, I was looking at your um your sweatshirt there, oh. and I have a a wine glass that says, "I just want to drink wine, save Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Well. I've had a lot of fun today. Yeah, this has been great. I, I, yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. We think, should we, should we quit while we're ahead? And took uh, the words out of my mouth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time out, everybody, and chatting about all this stuff. I hope to do it again soon. Yeah, we should, we should definitely do this again soon. Probably, I don't want to say after COVID's over, because we don't know when that's going right, to happen. Right, right. But at yeah. some point. But, some but at some point, at least yeah. check in and, and see, you know event see what's changed if anything yeah, yeah i think that's a great idea that's always if, the plan right when we treat patients right initiate a treatment plan and evaluate yeah. patient response like yeah let's ever, ever the technician jeff ever discuss the technician. some ideas and evaluate the response <laughs> i love it well yeah let's definitely plan to have this this discussion again in the future and like you said see if we've moved the needle even a little bit yep yeah awesome cool all right thanks guys thank, thank you, you. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that talk as much as I did. I want to say a huge thank you to Jeff and Dave for joining me. And like I said earlier, be sure to go check out the Vet Tech Cafe podcast the next time you have a few minutes. If you'd like to find out more about this and other exciting podcasts, click on the education tab on Vetfolio's website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.